अफगानिस्तान How are you Manjula? Nice to be here. Yeah. So, you know, Andrew was reading the book and as I said earlier, you know, it was a bit of a harrowing read. So, uh um you know, tell me how you wrote it because there's so much material, you know, and 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 also like the emotional cost of it, you know? So, if we if we can start with that. Sure. How I wrote it. Well, it it all came together pretty quickly. much like the the collapse of the Afghan republic and the the return of the Taliban did um mm. i was in kabul for the for when it occurred when the taliban marched into kabul um in in the middle of mm. august and i was there uh, during the the two weeks that followed as the evacuation from the airport in kabul uh, in kabul unfolded um with all those mm. those harrowing images that that I'm sure um most of your listeners will be familiar with and yes but it wasn't really until after that that I started for a number of reasons that I started um really focusing on reporting for the book itself um those reasons were mostly to do with the fact that I I had lived in Kabul for the better part of 10 years by this point and mm. although I was a a journalist and and a photographer um living in Kabul I was also a resident and so I had I felt as though I had a lot of responsibilities to um to my friends and colleagues in Kabul both um uh, foreigners mm. and and Afghan who um you know n- needed my help um needed the help of of a lot of different people and um including mine because i i was there on the ground and i could um there were ways that i could help um in in which others who were also helping but were outside the com- country were not able to so that that first two weeks um after the taliban arrived in kabul was was spent mostly uh tr- trying to help friends and colleagues um and and trying to manage um the situation myself as a resident and working out how or whether um I would be able to stay in the country myself um and and those kinds of considerations so it wasn't until after the evacuation ended at the end of August and by which time things settled down considerably that I was able to really focus on uh reporting for the book and I did that over the course of the next 2 months mm-hmm. in Kabul and uh then I traveled back home to Australia where I'm from and I spent mm-hmm. uh a little under 3 months writing the book um which is a pretty tight turnaround and 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 it was because uh my my publisher in Australia wanted to have the book out in time for the the 1 year anniversary of the return of the Taliban Mm. Mm. 
Now, uh, you know, I mean, you've had relationships with a lot of the people that you're writing about, and you know, so it must have been tough, no? Oh, I mean, because the level of empathy is high. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as I said, I, I had lived in Kabul for nearly 10 years by this point, and so I developed close ties not only with uh, people, including some of those who were um, featured in the book, but also just the city and the and the country itself. And that time was, was so tumultuous and so... Um, so uh, such a heavy uh, transitional period that it, I hope anyway, that it imbued the, the book with some of that um, empathy, as you say, or some of the, the feeling that I developed for the place and the people um, over that nearly 10 years in which I called it home. And, and so, yes, the, I mean, the, those feelings um, certainly uh, were strongly felt by me and, and, and still are, and it's, it's almost, um, I would say, a, a, a period of, of grieving over um, a period of my life and, and certainly vicarious grief for those who experienced it in a much more um, traumatic, acute way, um, th- th- those people being the, um, those like the, the people in the characters in the book who who had to leave, um, who really had no choice, whereas I had a choice to leave in the end and, and I made that choice to leave. Um, the, the people in the book, um, in, in most cases, did not have that choice but, but, um, and, and had to leave uh, in any case. Yes. Yes. So, you know, I was wondering about people like that Arman Malik, Right, that mm-hmm. uh, the soldier, mm-hmm. you know, who at the end of the book he's he's in hiding, right? Mm-hmm. So, do you want to talk about his case? You know, because I found that, like, because the others, Nadia's story was really powerful, mm-hmm. you know, and I felt, oh my god, and I think we carried an excerpt online mm-hmm. uh, from from the book, and that was to do with Nadia, Nadia's story. But you know, this guy Malik, Arman Malik, his story is also interesting. So, do you want to you know talk about both these people? You know, sure. So Arman Malik was a, a captain in the Afghan National Army and he was with a quite an elite unit within the Special Forces and um, he had a lot of mm. interaction with uh, American soldiers and uh, American intelligence officials over the years, but they didn't serve him um, any more than they did uh, any other uh, lower-ranked um, Afghan soldier um, in the end. And he was really left mm-hmm. to to fend for himself as um, others who had, um, for instance, trained or uh, studied overseas and therefore had uh, visas or existing connections with officials in, in countries outside Afghanistan he did not, and mm. so he was really left high and dry, mm. and and so he, in fact, he he chose in the end not to even attempt to get on an evacuation flight, as so many others did, um, many of whom probably were at less risk uh, of the incoming Taliban mm. uh, than they were, but um, mm. and than he was. I'm sorry. Um, mm-hmm. But he had a family in in Kabul who he 
um, was responsible for, young children and a wife. And um, so he, he made the very mm. deliberate decision to stay in Kabul. Um, as you say, after the evacuation uh, was completed, he went into hiding because he was um, he was extremely concerned that the Taliban were going to come after him. And, and perhaps he hadn't thought uh, thought of this um, to the extent that he should have um, during the time that he, he may have been able to get out of the country himself. But sure enough, uh, once the evacuation mm. was over, he realised that he was in significant danger, went into hiding. And it, in fact, um, this didn't make it into the book, but um, several months after um, I finished writing the book, Malik was actually captured by the Taliban. Oh, yeah. oh. Yeah. Oh, so is he dead now? I mean, we have no way of knowing. No, he, he's still alive and he's, and he has since been released, but he is in, he underwent a pretty horrendous ordeal uh, in captivity and, and is once again um, in hiding, even though he was released. Um, he's worried that um, other factions within the Taliban will, will still be looking for him. And so he's he's really a prisoner in his own country. Gosh, it's like it's like a nightmare that doesn't end. I mean, it's exactly for what him. it is. Yeah. Hmm. And Nadia's story. I mean, you know, like I found that that she was so full of forgiveness for her family, though they treated her so shabbily. You know, except for her mother. And her younger brother. Mm. So, but uh, how is that possible? Oh, I don't know. It's incredible, incredible, especially for such a, a young woman. Um, the level yeah. of forgiveness. I mean, I won't go into it too much. I'll let I'll let um, I'll let the, the the readers discover it for themselves. But um, she endured incredible, incredibly poor treatment from from her from members of her family. Um, the likes of which it, it's quite hard to fathom really yet Nadia still today finds it within herself to be able to to forgive them um, for this treatment which really um, put her life in extreme danger um, all for uh, in the hope that it would uh, grant safety to the to the rest of the family Mm-hmm. And I found that, you know, uh, that particular story brought out how this impending, like this looming danger of the Taliban, though it hadn't yet happened, it just kind of destroyed the family from, from within because it changed everybody's personality, I guess. It did, yeah. It's a, that's a good observation. And um, I think when we think of the Taliban, we we tend to think more or, or, or of the risk that the Taliban pose to um, certain groups within Afghan society. We, we think of members of the former government, um, of the former um, armed forces, and of course, women. Um, but we tend not to think of the way it impacts family groups, for instance, in this case, um, culturally, mm. the way it changes the behaviour um, uh, within a family, and and Nadia's family's case is is a is a you know case in point where the the threat 
of the Taliban coming to power entirely changed the the way the family behaved in this case towards um, uh, their eldest daughter that was was still in in Afghanistan, Nadia. Um, and it's yeah, it's a very um, insidious form of um, coercion, I suppose, and and it's and it's the mm. kind of culture um, that that it took and and still sorry it's the kind of culture that um made bringing um cultural reform to the country over the past 20 years very difficult because it because the Taliban had um imposed it so viciously in the in the 5 years in which they held power um in the late 90s and early 2000s mm. that it that it became ingrained within the culture um, in many in many facets of the culture, and and therefore much harder to eschew once um, it was not it was no longer imposed. Mm. You know, but when I was reading your book, I was also thinking about all these old photographs of Afghanistan in the seventies when you know everything looked so. Um, I mean, you know, you look at those pictures, you think, how can this place change so much? And it also makes you think that perhaps any place can change radically, you know. So is that what happened there? I mean, or was, you know, they always had this undercurrent of extreme conservatism or what? I mean, it's difficult to get your And since you've lived there 10 years, you know. Yeah, look, there certainly has always been this underlying um, ultra-conservative culture. Um, I think we have to be careful uh, referencing those photos that you're referring to, um, some of which some of your listeners might have seen. Um, I think you're probably referring to those where um, there are, you know, women walking down the streets of Kabul in, in skirts with, um, with um, you know, short sleeve tops and, and no, um, yes, no, yes. no head coverings or face coverings. And yes. I, although I'm not questioning um, the the veracity of those photographs themselves, I think they were, and, you know, I, I was not there at the time, but I think they were a bit of an anomaly. I don't think that was entirely normal. Um, okay. And, and certainly outside of Kabul, um, it, it, it definitely was not normal. Um, I'm, I'm certain of that. Okay. And even in the last mm. 20 years, um, during a period where, uh, any kind of head covering was not um, uh, mandated within the constitution. Um, they were ubiquitous, especially uh, okay. certainly in Kabul, and absolutely um, in in more rural parts of the country where it, um, co- conservatism was even stronger, and where um, in in many places the the all all covering um, burqa or um, chador was was uh, ubiquitous, and so yes, um, I, I would say that that the the conservatism has always um, run beneath the surface of whatever um, uh, government is in control at the time and whatever uh, constitution um, that they. Uh, try to implement the the cultural norms um, always overpower the um, the 
whatever is legal or illegal um, in, a, mm. in a constitutional sense. Mm. Mm. Okay. So, uh, you know, tell me as a photographer, uh, you know, we know that, you know, um, the Reuters photographer Danish Siddiqui was, was killed covering, um, you know, Afghanistan a couple of years ago, right? Mm-hmm. So as a photographer working there, did you face kind of challenges like that? Or, you know? um, from time to time, of course. I mean, uh, Danish's death was so tragic. I mean, uh, not only um, because he, he was young and he was successful and he was by all accounts, I, I never met him, but by all accounts, he was a lovely man. Um, but because it happened so close to the end of the war, um, I believe he was the last journalist killed in Afghanistan um, before the Taliban returned to power, and and a and a certain semblance of uh, I, I'm not going to call it peace, but certainly the the end of the war between the U.S. backed government and and the international forces and, and the Taliban came to an end. Um, yeah, but uh, certainly there were there were times where um, I, I, like all other journalists and, and photographers, um, faced uh, danger. I think um, um, Danish, at, at, in in the circumstances that that brought his um, un, untimely death, were were unusually dangerous. I think. Um, the Afghan government had been fairly reluctant to give access to the kinds of government forces that Danish uh, was given access to at the end, those being the more elite uh, special forces units. And, mm-hmm. and they were doing you know, particularly dangerous work and, and it was a, a, a particularly dangerous time. Um, the Afghan government and the security forces were... Um, increasingly losing control of the situation and being called to do um, increasingly um, or to, to conduct increasingly dangerous missions. And um, they lost a lot of personnel in those in those final months. And, and unfortunately, it was on one of these missions that um, Danish was embedded. And, um, yeah, we, we all unfortunately know, um, or for those who don't know, um, that, that, that um, Danish was killed on one of these missions in the southern province of, of Kandahar, and um, and um, yeah, his his dead body was um, left behind at the scene of an ambush, and and um, not not recovered for some time, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Right. So these were the, these were the kind of things that I mean, people working there had to had to kind of I don't know deal with, I guess, right. Journalists and photographers, and yeah, what was that? of course. I mean, I don't think you go to work in a place like Afghanistan um, expecting it to be um, without some degree of risk. So, I, I, mm. I think um, um, a- any journalist who who travelled to Afghanistan, or any Afghan journalist who chose to be a journalist in their home country, knew that um, the the work that they were going to do would be more dangerous than um, that which they, which a, a foreign journalist might be able to do in a in a in another foreign country, or which another which an Afghan might be able to do um, in another line of work. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So tell me what kept you there for 10 years, you know? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think I'm still trying to work that out. But um, <laughs> certainly the uh, at the heart of it, I think the Afghan people are more um, uh, more hospitable, warmer than than many other cultures that I've I've um, experienced, and so that that certainly had a, a huge impact. Um, when I first travelled to Afghanistan, I I was there as a photographer, and, and I worked as a photographer um, right up until. Um, my final days in Afghanistan, but I also started to write by those later years. Um, but as mm-hmm. a photographer, Afghanistan is an incredible uh, canvas on which to work. It's it's um, the the landscape is dramatic and beautiful and and terrifying. The um, uh, the, the 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 light um, is 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 very um and it's very different to what i have been used to in australia in any case it's it's probably a, a lot more similar to that which um your listeners in in india are, are used to it's a lot a lot softer mm-hmm. um okay. and, uh, particularly in winter and and particularly um your your listeners in delhi will certainly um appreciate this in winter in kabul the the um the pollution in the air is is not um, dissimilar to that um, in 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 Delhi, you have the oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> we were often it can't be this bad. <laughs> no, we, we were off, we were often um, looking at the air quality um, scales, and and Kabul was often competing with with Delhi for the the worst really? air quality in the world. Um, but, <laughs> but as a photographer, that that is um, it's strangely enough, it, it's something that. Um, it potentially, you know, adds extra atmosphere to, to photographs. <laughs> so while everyone else is... I'm dying. I'm dying when the, I'm doing yeah. pictures. Yeah. <laughs> so I was amongst the, amongst the few people who were um, able to enjoy aspects of the poor air quality. <laughs> um, so that certainly came into it. And then also I just found a, a purpose in Afghanistan and, and through my work in Afghanistan that I hadn't found elsewhere before. And it found like I was covering very important stories at a, a, a poignant moment in, in history um, and, and, and certainly in a, at a poignant moment for the... Um, I, I suppose more broadly beyond Afghanistan, um, for what the um, American and um, the American allies, their legacy in Afghanistan and, and in the Middle East post nine eleven, um, what what that would be, and and how history would um, judge this conflict and the and and the um, war on terror years and. And being there to document that uh, for um, for the history books was was something that gave me a great sense of purpose. Okay, okay, and 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 I mean, I guess because you've lived there so long, you know, one got this feeling that you're. Um, I mean, you've been impartial in the way you've presented, uh, uh, you know, presented officials the departing officials you know like the americans and 
you know, everybody and sort of, I mean, the readers left to judge for herself, mm-hmm. which is really a good thing. So you want to talk about how you achieved that? Yeah. Oh, that's a, a nice compliment. <laughs> Thank you, Manjula. Because it's something that I, yeah, I think is really important. And, um, you know, we we all have our biases and we I, th- I think it's important to acknowledge them, but also mm-hmm. to try and present information, especially as a journalist, in a way that allows a, a reader in this case to make their own judgment or make their own assessment based mm. on the facts that I can provide them. And, and that mm. was, um, that was particularly important to me, um, particularly in this book where you had characters coming from, um, various perspectives, um, within the conflict. Um, you had civilians like, like Nadia, you had soldiers from the government side, like, uh, Malik, as we talked about, you had um, senior government officials, and then you had members of the the Taliban. And you know, one thing I realised after all my years in Afghanistan was that whether you agreed with them or not, mm. everyone there had their own reasons, their own motivations for making the choices that they that they did, and. Mm even if I did not agree with the the kind of rule that the Taliban wished to impose and the kinds of uh, restrictions they wanted to and have placed on, um, in particular, women, mm. I could understand through speaking to members of the Taliban why they had joined. And in many cases, it was because, um, it was because of the the war that had been imposed on them, what, what they saw as a, as a foreign occupation. And mm. I think if anyone puts themselves in the shoes of, of such a young man, that they would be lying to themselves if they didn't admit that they may well have made the same decision. And so I, I think that's what I tried to do in the book was to give some context around the, the characters and their upbringings and um, the reason they made the decisions they did. And then, as you say, to, to lay those out and to, uh, and, and to then bring them into the, the present context of, of the time around um, that of the, 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 the uh, coming of the Taliban for a second time and the, and the evacuation of the, um, of the, um, of the uh, American international forces and so on, um, mm. but um, uh, and to and to um, I guess blend the the contexts of uh, the contexts of um, what came before and and what was happening in the present and and um, as we already said to to let the reader. Um, make their assessments on each of those individuals um, based on all that information. Mm. And, you know, I was quite struck by the story of uh, um, of that boy, I mean, a young man who uh, the Taliban, uh, you know, they, they get out of prison and uh, and they're walking, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, I mean, while, you know, the image one has of the Taliban is these wild people you know mm-hmm. who are doing all these things mm-hmm. there's 
you know, you bring out his character and his motivations very well. I mean, he's just walking and, you know, you, he, it's difficult not to feel sympathy for them as well, right? So, but that's also, I mean, made me feel a bit, um, because one could see their point of view. Yeah, you know, no, that, that's exactly yeah. what I was trying to explain um, before, because, yeah, you, um, you know, when you find yourself sympathising with, uh, a member of the Taliban, you it 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 conjures a lot of conflicting feelings, right? I mean, um, yes. for for um, you or I or anyone who um, presumably does not agree with the, the Taliban's ideology. Um, but I, I suppose what was equally important for me was to you know put myself in the shoes of a member of the Taliban, and um, mm-hmm. I, I don't know how many members of the Taliban will read my book, but I would like for them to have the same experience reading about, for example, Nadia or for another, um, for a member of the uh, government security forces and and um, hopefully to be able to empathise with uh, the, the reasons that they made the decisions they did. Hmm. Yeah. Well. You know, and I also found this bit very, um, for some anti-Taliban figures who were allied with the United States, denouncing tribal or business rivals as Taliban (laughs) was a way of eliminating threats to commercial interests or settling personal scores. Others were induced by cash rewards to point out supposed terrorists. I mean, this must have been rampant, no? Yeah, I I think it was. And I think the the difference um, between... The, the beginning of the US-led war and, for example, now when the, the tide has turned and the Taliban are in power and perhaps there are incentives for, uh, for, for people to turn in members of the former government or um, those who had had some sort of involvement with the former government is that, is that uh, in the first instance there was so much money being thrown around and um, which, mm. which doesn't exist so much now. Perhaps now the motivation would be um, uh, self-defence, um, protection. Uh, if you can hand mm. someone to the Taliban that was involved with the former government, maybe they, there would be a, an assumption that that would grant you some kind of favour with the Taliban. Whereas mm. um, 20 years ago when the... US-led coalition um, came to Afghanistan, that the, the money was just, you know, it, it, it was beyond words, the amount of money that was being thrown around. And so not only was there opportunity to curry favour with, um, with, with the Americans and, and the um, Afghans that they were putting in power or enabling, um, there, was also, there was also a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Gosh, it just sounds, I mean, it's the way things work out. It's all, always so unexpected. I mean, people have been going into war for forever, mm. but each one seems to have, throw up new kind of, I don't know, challenges. Or yeah, quite right. Learning. Quite right. <laughs> this is, yeah. And also this thing about, uh, you know, um, then cutting off detainees would be flown to flown to American or military CIA bases, and this whole thing about the CIA and um, and the local, you know, and the and and the elite local forces. You want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. So the, these um, these elite local forces that 
the CIA had had uh, founded and established and um, mentored, paid and and operated with um, since the early years of the war were, in the end, they, they, they there was a deal that was struck between uh, these militias. Um, uh, with the help of the CIA and the American army that was looking after the evacuation, that that deal um, it, it basically saw it, the, the the CIA basically said to these militias that they that they worked with, "We need your help securing the airport, uh, and in return, we are going to fly you and your family members." out of here um, to safety. Mm -hmm. And so they they were among the last Afghan government, uh, well, ostensibly Afghan government security forces operating uh, in Afghanistan, um, though they were by and large under the command of the CIA. And I had done a lot of reporting on them in the past. They they were... um, they were both effective, but also very brutal, and um, had, uh, according to the reporting I'd done, and and that of um, other journalists and, and human rights organisations, they were very, um, uh, they were extremely brutal and responsible for a number of, um, you know, scores of of uh, civilian deaths and and. Um, uh, wounded civilians, um, very few of which, if any, ever um, that the, the victims ever saw justice for, and so um, it was. Um, it was in these final days that um, you know, around the airport and in in amongst the the chaos of what was happening at the airport, that these uh, militias or some members within these militias in any case, um, took it upon themselves to met out some some final um, vengeance against, uh, as it was, against some of the Taliban who had been released from a, um, a prison outside Kabul. Mm-hmm. So those guys, I mean, who died, some nine boys who were killed in, in, in that... Uh, compound mm-hmm. right that was also part of mm-hmm. yeah that's mm-hmm. right that's right they had been um, they'd been released the same day from uh, Bagram prison which was um, the the largest prison uh, in the country I believe um, certainly the prison that housed some of the most um, uh, serious uh, dangerous um, uh, terror suspects and and Taliban suspects. Hmm. And he, that bit about the suicide bomber, uh, you know, uh, at the canal, mm-hmm. and how did you piece that together? I mean, this is a gruesome scene, and I was just wondering about it. And you, you know, mm-hmm. one kind of gets an impression of how it happened. So mm-hmm. there was been a lot of reportage that went into that to draw up that picture. Yeah, it did. Um it was really just through speaking to many, many people who were either there at the time um, or who 
were were friends with or related to um, some of those who who were there at the time and who who were ultimately killed. Um, mm. And and also through my own experience, I had been to the to the location where the suicide bombing took place uh, twenty four hours earlier, and so I had some understanding of the of what that scene was like um, and what, what the circumstances were like at this this entrance to the airport where you know, tens of thousands of people were trying to trying desperately to get inside the airport, having to wade through a, a sewage-filled canal um, and, and to, to really battle, um, you know, t- tens of thousands of others who were trying to get get inside as well. Um, so it was really just through, um, uh, I, I suppose, uh, talking to as many sources as I, as I could, um, including people who were um, outside the airport at the time trying to get inside and those who were inside, including um, uh, American uh, military forces who, who were inside and, and um, uh, trying to secure that that very entrance from the inside at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, you've mentioned somewhere, I think right in the beginning, that uh, sometimes you just, you didn't use some stories because they were, you sensed that they weren't true. So uh, how did you like, you know, how did you, how did you work it out? Mm. It, it was, I mean, usually it, it was based on a, a feeling that I had that there, that the, the stories they were telling or the the versions of events that they told me mm. didn't correspond to other versions that I'd heard or didn't mm. just didn't seem credible for one reason or or another so what would happen in those situations I would usually try to verify them by another means by speaking to someone else or by interviewing them again and cross cross checking what they'd told me the first time um, and, and so, yeah, it, it was those kinds of people, um, particularly those who, um, had a, a vested interest in the way the, the story was told, um, who were, who were conscious of the way, uh, they would be portrayed, um, in the future and, and how it might implicate, uh, future, um, you know, professional opportunities or, or that kind of thing. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And some of the uh, Afghan army men seem kind of, I mean, I don't know, they seem to have just fallen apart so easily. Yeah, very much so. And and I think um, it's not, it, it would be oversimplified to suggest that, that they themselves were just not up for the task or were not motivated or mm-hmm. were not brave. I think um, a lot of a lot of the reason for the Afghan army's collapse in the end was it, it was based on morale and that to a large extent came from the lack of support that they got from their government in Kabul and from the, the effects of corruption, um, the effects that corruption mm-hmm. had on um, for example, their supply chains, their ability to um, uh, resupply bases with ammunition and food and, and basic equipment. Um, and, and then I, I think it was the, the lack of cohesion that was very visible in Kabul 
um, amongst the highest levels of, of the government and the, the lack of general belief in the government and in the Ashraf Ghani administration that, that in the end it didn't give the Afghan army much to fight for or much to believe in in order to, f- to fight and potentially die for. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And it seemed like the chain of command had completely uh, vanished almost, no? It did. I mean, and it happened very quickly. Um, I mean, it, it, it started to, to happen in the, in the provinces in the, the weeks before. But it, it, as you said, it, it wasn't until the final days that it really started to unravel and the the chain of command just lost all control and lost all ability to um, carry out its you know its its role of of securing the country and and in the end securing Kabul. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. So personally, which which bit of the book did you find most difficult to write? You know. Hmm. Um. Good question. I, I'd say. Look, the, the most complex part was probably the, and, and the most, and, and the part which I really wanted to make sure I got, got right was um, that that was situated inside the, inside the presidential palace where decisions mm-hmm. were being made that would have um, effects uh, not only within the palace but um, in Kabul and for the rest of the country. Um, and, and for Afghanistan and Afghans as a whole. So, you know, there were a lot of, obviously a lot of people involved, um, a lot of people who were um, in, in the aftermath of the collapse very concerned about how they would be um, remembered in the history books. And, mm. and, and so there was a, potentially a lot of motivation for uh, people to kind of launder their stories, I suppose, um, in, over, in, in order to paint themselves in the best, in, in the most favourable light. And so, um, and it was also very complex. There was, you know, there was um, what was happening inside the, the palace was also, um, you know, there were, there were phone calls and other forms of communication being made, you know, throughout the country, but also to the US, to Washington, D.C., to uh, Doha, Qatar, with the Taliban, and um, mm. it, it was a matter of trying to verify and corroborate all these different uh, threads so that they um, they portrayed a, a cohesive and uh, truthful one in the end. Mm. You know, and I found I think this is Zara who says uh, we were sold to the Talibs. The flock of sheep was tied up, and the fox was called to come and eat. I found that like so sad and also maybe true in many ways yeah i i think that's the sentiment of a lot of um a lot of afghans particularly those who were close to the former government that they they felt very much abandoned um i mean in some circles the in some afghan circles you would hear the theory that the americans had in the end uh, collaborated with with the Taliban in their um, in order to uh, hand the country over to them, and so um, while I don't think this is what happened um, in a in a any kind of planned way, I mean it, I I think people can be forgiven for 
um, believing that, g- given the way um, it, it all turned out in the end, um, the way that uh, you know Kabul wasn't even fought for in the end. It was it was more or less handed over. The the president fled the country, uh, and the Americans got out, um, uh, not without some loss, mind you, um, as a result of that suicide bombing we spoke of. But they, mm. they got out um, in a far less, um, uh, I suppose, uh, for, for their forces anyway, and for their personnel in for in a much safer um, manner than than it may have happened if um, if political negotiations hadn't um, borne the fruit that they did. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I could. I would imagine that. I mean, if they were, if if they were just soldiers there, if everybody was rushing to the airport, I mean, soldiers themselves could have just been, you know, eliminated. <laughs> if if it wasn't, if it you know, if it didn't play out in this way, it they wouldn't have stood a chance. You know, if they didn't just leave. No, no, quite right. I would imagine. No, quite right. And it was yeah. it was incredible that it all ended up. Um, converging on this at, at the same time these you know these three or these two events the, the collapse of the government and the and the return of the Taliban coincided in the end with the withdrawal of the Americans and yeah no the Americans certainly didn't plan it that way and I think even the Taliban didn't expect it to their return to come as quickly as it did hmm. Mm. Do you think you'd ever go back to Afghanistan? I'd love to go back one day, yes. Mm. Okay. Okay, great. And so and on that note, we'll end. Um, for, for the listeners, uh, go out and get August in Kabul by a- Andrew Quilty. It is a great read. Uh, um, you know, it's um, like we said earlier, it is a harrowing read, but it gives you insights into what happened in Kabul and what's ha- what happened in Afghanistan and how things fell apart so very quickly. You know, it's, it's something that is difficult to understand. Um, but once you read the book, you do get a better picture. So thank you, Andrew, for talking to me. Thanks so much, Manjula. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> This was a Hindustan Times production brought to you by HD Smartcast. HD Smartcast.